Welcome to the Church of Pod. This podcast is about a relatively small, fundamentalist Christian movement, which I used to be a member of. It's about high-demand religion and life after it. I'm Ben, and I'm your host. Today it's going to be just me, and I'm going to talk to you about something very misunderstood, something that everyone I think is at least a little afraid of, unbelief. I'm not going to talk much about the nature of faith, and I'm certainly not trying to talk you out of yours. However, it will be helpful for you to be informed about what the lack of faith and the loss of faith can mean in someone's life. What is atheism? What is agnosticism? Where do atheists get their morality? I'll also talk briefly about nihilism, evolution, the afterlife, and the subculture of unbelievers. I'll sprinkle in some book recommendations, and I'll wrap it up with a few words about alternatives to total unbelief, a somewhere in between place where you might find a comfortable home without needing to be dogmatic about either side of this controversial issue. leaving a religion or questioning any aspect of your religion, then no doubt the specter of unbelief has haunted you. Faith is such a foundational part of so many people's lives, and the prospect of not believing is actually inconceivable to some people. Of course, we're talking about a belief in God. I often encounter people who are curious about my lack of belief. It's almost like meeting an alien to them. They just can't understand how someone cannot see the obvious evidence of God or can make sense of the world at all without faith. There's even a particular branch of apologetic thought called presuppositionalism, which is a belief that everyone actually does know there's a God, and that that's the default position, and that unbelievers are actively suppressing this knowledge or lying about it. So knowledge of God to a presuppositionalist is the default for a human. God makes himself manifest, and the person has to actively deny that knowledge. Even if you're not a presuppositionalist, belief is still the chief virtue in many flavors of Christianity. For many, it isn't any sins that will land you in hell. That would be a works-based theology, which many Christians teach against. It's unbelief that makes you worthy of eternal torment. Jesus would forgive you your sins if only you would believe. So belief becomes really the ultimate, sort of the only measure of a man. If I say I believe in God, you can infer a lot of predictable things about my behavior. You may feel comforted even if we just met because you'll know that I value the same virtues as you and I strive to be acceptable to God's judgment. So you understand what motivates me and you're much more ready to trust me. I've used the word fundamentalist a lot on this podcast. By fundamentalist, I mean a strict adherence to a single interpretation of scripture an insistence on truth claims. And you might be thinking, well, everyone insists on some truth claims. Sure, sort of. I'll talk about that more later. But skepticism and the scientific method are both attempts to arrive at truth, not by enshrining preconceptions or traditions, but actually by examining them critically and being willing to improve and change any idea if a better one comes along. Church of God Restoration maintains a large set of truth claims that members are required to believe in order to be considered members. A young earth, the authority of the apostles, the inerrancy of scripture, and 
thus basically anything that's written in Scripture, as that Scripture is interpreted by church leadership, all of this is required of rank-and-file members to believe. Orthodoxy is important. One mark of the one true church, the COG teaches, is unity. And in part that means uniformity of thought, that we all teach and believe the same thing. The individual's conscience is therefore subordinated to the group's conscience. A related and very significant thing to understand slash realize about fundamentalist belief systems is that the dogma is what the group is made of. It's the dogma that defines the group. So a threat to the dogma is a threat to the authority of the group, a threat to its very existence. And it will resist and defend itself, just like a cornered organism. Belief is the lifeblood of dogma. If nobody believes in it, it literally stops existing. Make no mistake, the tenets of the group are more important than the individuals in the group. This is why it seems appropriate for an individual to give up their autonomous thought in support of the dogma, and why when an individual, no matter how long they've been a beloved member of the community, will be ousted and blacklisted if they are perceived as a threat to the dogma. It should be obvious why this is destructive. You are probably not in a position to control how the COG or other organizations respond to contrary ideas and unbelief, but you can control your response to it and your behavior towards unbelievers, towards doubters, and towards your own doubts. Every time someone stands up to these totalist systems, it contributes to the destruction of tyranny in the world, and it can entirely reform the tyranny in your world. Unbelief is a big deal, and we are going to talk about atheism and agnosticism in a moment, but before jumping all the way into that, I want to touch on and recognize that there are degrees of unbelief, and much of what I'll say can be applied to your faith crisis, whether it is partial or total. Ideas often are held in a framework where one idea supports another, and if you remove one, things may need to shift or other ideas may have no place to exist, and those need to be examined as well. This can have a cascading effect, and it is undoubtedly scary. My advice, if you're there, is take your time. Comfort yourself that the truth can stand up to any scrutiny. It doesn't need you to coddle and to protect it. In fact, the better opposition truth receives, the more powerfully true it will prove. And as I'll say many times in this episode, it's okay to believe whatever's true. Hopefully, after this episode, if you're maybe staring down the barrel of a faith crisis, you can know what's coming, you can avoid some of the pitfalls, and I hope you'll feel more comfortable with your doubts. And if you're not experiencing any doubts, I applaud you. For you, I hope this episode helps you understand what motivates your skeptical neighbors a little bit better. Okay, let's dive in and let's talk about atheism. Uh, The word is the letter A, and that is a prefix that's a negation. Like atypical means not typical. Asexual means non-sexual. And theism is someone who believes in God. So an atheist is someone who does not believe in God. And if you can understand 
that that's all that it means, then you'll come a long way toward at least not misunderstanding your friendly neighborhood atheist. Being an atheist is a negation, and that's all. It means I don't believe in a God. It doesn't say anything about what you do believe. We will discuss some ideologies that many atheists hold, like humanism, but for now, know that atheism doesn't mean a person believes in evolution or abortion or any of that stuff. It simply means they do not believe in any gods. Sometimes atheists will say, we're all atheists. You're an atheist about the Greek gods and the Egyptian gods and 10,000 other gods. An atheist is just like that, except about one more god than you. So don't assume too much about an atheist. Something a lot of people say, which betrays a lack of understanding of distinction between atheism, which is the lack of belief in a god, and other philosophies like humanism that do attempt to answer moral questions, is the statement that atheism is a religion. It's really not. It's literally the lack of that. Now, atheists can be dogmatic about their lack of belief. That's true. And many of them hold certain tenets like naturalism and empiricism in common. But it isn't organized with creeds or doctrines or, or leadership or ceremonies or any of the trappings of religion. There are famous atheists. We'll talk about them a little bit. There are organizations around atheism. But in my opinion, it really isn't helpful to think of it as a religion. And it definitely isn't winning to call it that. It's quite appropriate to think of it simply as a negative statement about the single question of theism, the belief in God. The other big label is agnosticism. We have the letter A again, the negation, and then the term gnostic means knowledge. I think it's Latin or something. So this is someone who doesn't know. They lack knowledge. They don't know if there's a God. Personally, I don't correct people for using either of these labels on me. I'm both. However, there's a connotation that is different. Generally, people think of an atheist as someone who positively asserts that there's no God. And an agnostic is a little softer. It's thought of as someone who's, say, meh, I'm not sure. It could go either way. Generally, that holds true. That someone who labels themselves as an atheist is going to be a little bit more cocky about the idea that the Christian God isn't real. And an agnostic probably isn't going to argue with you about it, and doesn't like to make any statements either way. In reality, if you get into it with a self-described atheist, very, very few of them will ever positively assert that there is no God and they can prove it. They may be willing to say that they're certain there's no Zeus or Brahma or Jehovah, but the main tenet of atheism is skepticism. Skepticism is doubt. Doubt as the default. The idea that I only believe in things with evidence. All claims require evidence. And the more extraordinary the claim, the more extraordinary the evidence that is required to make me believe it. A skeptic doubts all claims, meaning they don't take them for granted. So doubt, instead of belief, is considered the virtue. For example, if we believed that Thor causes the thunder, then we would never feel the need to investigate that phenomenon, and we therefore might continue in our mistaken beliefs. The scientific method teaches us to question everything, 
including and especially our preconceptions and our biases, and even to constantly test and retest the things that we assume. This is how we arrive closer and closer to an understanding that aligns with reality. We continually improve our ideas. It really is a virtue, if you think about it. When I first started doubting the Bible, it was very, very scary to me. In fundamentalism, you're taught not even to let your mind doubt. Don't even entertain it. It's a trick. It's the forbidden fruit. You'll be deluded and seduced, and you won't even realize it. I didn't know what to do with my doubts when they got serious. And you're taught to just push them away. Have faith. Don't ask the questions. Ignore them. Or accept the answers, even if there's a lack of evidence. If any answers or evidence are contrary to orthodoxy, have faith that you're not understanding it right. And orthodoxy is the way that it is. But you wouldn't want someone else doing that. Let's say that a Muslim has faith in their religion and just shuts their mind off to contrary evidence. You would accuse them of being unfair. You would hope that they'd be willing to look critically at their beliefs. And it's only fair that we do the same. There are whole fields of study that discuss how we know things, how we can reliably arrive at the truth. Epistemology, philosophy, the scientific method. These explore how we know things. How do we eliminate our biases and look at the world objectively to try to arrive at the most reliable model of reality? Well, at the very least, we have to be willing to be mistaken. We have to be humble. When I was starting my faith crisis, I thought a lot about this, and I developed a mantra, which you can have if it helps you. And I said it to you earlier. It is okay to believe whatever is true. You agree with that, don't you? It's okay to believe whatever's true. If evolution turns out to be true, then it's okay to believe that. No God will punish you for believing what's true. It's okay to submit all of your beliefs to scrutiny because the true ones will stand up to it. The false ones are okay to jettison. You only need to believe things that are true and you can only know they're true with evidence. That's the crux of skepticism as opposed to belief. Skepticism doesn't have to be an attack or a negation. It's just a willingness to question everything. It's actually a devotion to the truth, not an attack on it, because it's a tool, an opportunity to refine truth and arrive at something even more true than you started with, or else to confirm your current understanding, whatever the case turns out to be. And you're okay with whatever the outcome is, because it's okay to believe whatever is true. As a scientist, you don't skew the results. You don't start with your conclusions. You follow the evidence, like a curious, objective detective looking at clues. Is there a God? What are they like? Well, how would you investigate that? How can we know? These are epistemological questions, and I'd encourage you to investigate that field of philosophy if you're curious to know more about this. But be willing to believe whatever is true, and always be refining your models. Don't take anything for granted. Be skeptical. Be curious. If nothing else, it'll help you trim the fat on your worldview.
So atheism is not believing in God. It isn't even necessarily a positive statement that there is no God. Again, almost no atheist would be willing or able to defend that negative claim. It isn't possible to know there isn't a God. It's not possible to prove that. And agnosticism means not knowing. It's just something that we don't have enough evidence on. Or we're open to the prospect of, but we may be skeptical about. All right, let's continue on to a very common and interesting question and a misconception about unbelievers. Where does a non-religious person possibly get their morals from? It's often assumed that they have no basis for their morals. If there is no God, there's no heaven or hell to punish and reward you, what motivates an atheist to not rape and murder? What moral code binds them? How do we decide moral questions if there is no ultimate authority on morals? Well, remember that atheism doesn't answer this question. It doesn't tell us anything positive. It's simply a negation. This person doesn't believe in a deity. So what's an atheist to do? My position on this has always been that a non-believer gets their values from the same place as a believer. Where does a believer get their values? And you may say, well, from God. All right, let's think about that. Let's think about the Ten Commandments. Let's just take one of the commandments, thou shalt not murder. What if God had said, instead of thou shalt not murder, he told Moses on the mountain, thou shalt murder? Would that make murder good? If God tells you to dash a baby's head against a stone, would that be made good? Or would God's wish for it make God bad? I contend that murder is bad, not because God said so, even if you're a believer. In fact, murder was bad before the commandment was given. You'll remember that Moses killed an Egyptian, and he ran away and hid. That's why he was at Mount Sinai in the first place. He fled Egypt because of the guilt of killing an Egyptian. He knew better than to murder without being told. Murder isn't bad because God said so on Sinai or because God doesn't prefer it. Murder is bad because it's hurtful. God doesn't prefer it because it's hurtful. That's why God said not to murder. God tries to teach us the things that will most lead us into an abundant life and reduce our suffering. Jesus teaches this a lot. He says, love is the fulfillment of the law because love does no harm to its neighbor. All the law and the prophets, all of these rules and commandments, they hang on this one commandment, he says. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as thyself. You'll find him stressing that all these little rules don't matter. One time Jesus and the disciples were hungry on the Sabbath day, a day when Jewish law commands them not to do any work. And they were hungry. They're walking through a field and they picked some grain and they ate it. Now, the hyper-religious people of the day accused them of working. What's the difference between what they did and harvesting food? And Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The purpose of laws is to benefit people. Love is doing what's good for your neighbor, 
and love fulfills all of these rules. So we see that the rules are made to reduce suffering and to benefit mankind. Sabbath was made for man. Why is not murdering good? Because God said so? No, God said so because not murdering increases the well-being of mankind. Morals do not come down to us by divine fiat, divine command. Neither do they come from apostolic decree. It was a real red flag for me as a member when Ray Tinsman preached that, quote, by the keys we have made things right and wrong. He meant that if he said that sandals, wearing sandals was immoral and immodest, that God agreed. They believe that what he binds on earth was bound in heaven because he has the keys of the kingdom. I knew better than this, even as a saint. Morals flow from our nature as conscious creatures. We are capable of experiencing positive and negative feelings, pleasure and suffering. Good things are good because they do us good. I'm not saying things that Christians don't believe. In fact, I learned this from Charles Finney. You can read in his Systematic Theology, and he brings these ideas out scripturally. Here's another way to think of it. When we worship, we may sing, God is good. If good simply means the things God prefers, then it's nothing but a tautology, saying the same thing twice. God is good. God is the things that God prefers. It's nonsense. It's not praiseworthy. It's not even very interesting. If you say, Ben is just what Ben is, well, that's not a moral statement about me of any kind. For saying God is good to be meaningful at all, we have to mean that he does things that increase well-being. We have to mean that there's a moral code back of God that we're judging him by, if you'll excuse the phrase. God is generous, kind, patient, comforting. This is all very helpful. It doesn't really work to write down a list of rules for everyone to follow. Rigid rules don't fit every situation in a dynamic life. Jesus taught that a living morality and not a dead letter is what's important. He taught that if you sincerely love your neighbor, that is, seek their best good, do them no harm, that you won't need the written code. You'll naturally do what is, quote, right. That is what is beneficial. So Christian morality is about love of the neighbor. The goodness of God is about the overflowing positivity and well-being that comes from his spirit. That love doesn't mean liking someone a lot. It means doing good for them. Bless them that curse you. Pray for those that spitefully use you. So I contend that atheists get their morals in the exact same way as believers. How does an unbeliever judge if something is right or wrong? Well, one way they can do that is by asking if it does their neighbor good or does them ill. If the action is more productive of suffering than it is of benefit in the universe, then that action can be judged to be immoral. In these terms, the philosophy is sometimes called humanism. This primarily means a philosophy that seeks to benefit humans. Basically, it's the second commandment. I think it might be more appropriate to advocate for a kind of humaneism, 
a seeking of the highest good, not just of humans, but of all conscious creatures. If goodness is eliminating suffering and maximizing well-being, then that applies to any being that can experience those feelings in the proportion that they can experience them. Is it wrong to kill a fly? Well, yeah, but not as wrong as killing a person. And the proportions are based on how much suffering a fly can feel with their almost unaware brains and their less complex nervous systems. We asked earlier why an atheist doesn't rape and kill everyone that they want to. And when asked this, the magician Pendulette, an atheist, said, I already have raped and killed everyone I want to, which is nobody. What's the matter with you? <laughs> and to quote uh, the comedian Bo Burnham, speaking in God's voice, he says, you shouldn't abstain from rape just because you think that I want you to. You shouldn't rape because rape is a fucked up thing to do. There are real dangers in believing that morals come to us by fiat, that they're just dictated to us. A phrase for this is having the locus of control outside of ourselves. That means that the thing controlling our behavior isn't us, it's something outside of us. The locus or the location where the decision happens is outside. When the locus of control is outside of ourselves, whether God is making that decision or the Bible or your local God in the flesh, we can find ourselves unable to make the dynamic decisions and judgments that real well-being requires in exceptional circumstances. It's much more powerful to know how something works and have it as a tool, to lift up the hood and understand the engine and its workings. Then when you're out on the road alone and there's a funny noise or something breaks down, you'll really understand and know how to fix it. This understanding is not exclusive. It's not forbidden to you. and It's not exclusive to any priests or religious leaders. They want you to, to make you think that it is so that they can make those decisions for you and control your behavior. But you are just as capable of moral thought and conscious choice as anyone. Otherwise, why does everyone have their own conscience? If the locus of control is external, we're disarmed from the only tools that we have against charlatans. If you completely cede your moral decision-making to an apostle, and then the apostle wants you to do him a sexual favor, what do you do? Would that be wrong? If you believe that they, with the power of the keys, can make things right or wrong, then no. Technically, you could justify that. And now you know how these insane cult stories happen, where a cult leader is sleeping with all the women, or gets the people to kill themselves. The people are led to believe that the leader controls the morals. They stop being skeptical. They stop judging for themselves. And then nothing is impossible for them. Whether or not you think anything bad is currently happening in the COG, the system is setting itself up for something terrible to happen. It is primed for pathological men to abuse the power that they're given as gods in the flesh. This is the same kind of totalist system that America's founding fathers threw off. And they enshrined virtues like free speech, freedom of the press, to ensure our ability to be skeptical of leaders, to be critical of them, to gather information freely, 
to think for ourselves and to tell our leaders to go to hell if they try to manipulate or enslave us. Apply these same civic virtues to religion and remember that it's okay to believe whatever is true. Ray does not get to decide what is right and wrong. Even God doesn't decide that. Right and wrong flow from our natures as conscious creatures. Causing suffering and violating rights is wrong. Seeking the good of others and honoring their autonomy is what we call good. And your atheist neighbor is just as capable of feeling love and having moral code as you are. In fact, a case could be made that the humanist has a more solid foundation than the believer, because a believer, having ceded their judgment to outside control, is easily manipulated. If a Muslim imam declares a fatwa, a holy war, against an individual, a believer may lack the tools which would stop them from committing crimes and sins in the service of their religion. It's okay to believe whatever's true, and you have to have and you have to use the tools that you are endowed with by nature to avoid being taken advantage of by wolves. Use your reason. Use your moral sense. Those are the very spirit of God in you. Don't give them to someone else. Humans have been discussing these questions of morals for thousands of years, and I encourage you to dig into the philosophers. From Socrates and Plato to Immanuel Kant, David Hume, Frederick Nietzsche, to name very few. Check them out skeptically. You don't have to believe them or agree with them. Just be curious. Whatever you find in there, it's okay to believe whatever's true. And anything else, you can just toss. These ideas that I've lined out are just one way of thinking about morals. I've talked about humanism a little bit. The idea that morals are based on the well-being of conscious creatures is called utilitarianism. And there are arguments against it that are fascinating. And there are other ways to view the universe and judge moral questions. This is philosophy. And if you're interested, dig into it. The best resource that I know of and a great place to start, I've listened to it multiple times. I discovered it in the COG and it was very helpful to me, is a series of lectures which you can find on YouTube. And they are a Harvard professor and he teaches a class called Justice. What is the right thing to do? This teacher is just the best. From the very first lecture, he'll captivate you, not really by telling you all of the answers, but by challenging you to think, by telling you moral stories. Some of them are true, some are just thought experiments. But they get you thinking and rethinking your position on really dissecting why you believe what you believe. If you're familiar, for example, with the trolley question, the first episode of this deals with that. I first heard of this interesting thought experiment there in this first lecture, and it captivated me. It was probably my main mental preoccupation for a year. I got a lot out of it. Remember that it's okay to believe what's true. It's okay to investigate your ideas. Good ideas will come out even stronger after strong scrutiny. So again, those lectures on YouTube, they're called Justice. What is the right thing to do? Check them out. I just loved them. I think you'd be hooked after the first one. Okay, that's enough moral philosophy for today. And I want to shift and talk a little bit about the struggles of unbelief. 
I have found not believing, as I've said, uh, to be both scary and liberating. It's pretty wild to go from thinking that you're all set for eternity and then just having no clue. It's like being rich, never thinking about money, and then finding yourself living on the street. So in my case, I lost my belief pretty fast. And uh, the fire hose of skepticism just washed away so much of the foundation of my worldview. When you discover that the things that you have most surely believed aren't true, and you realize for the first time in a long time that skepticism is helpful and valid, and you turn it on your beliefs, well, I found that I had a lot more house cleaning to do than I ever imagined. And you're likely to feel yourself untethered. You know all those hymns about being anchored to the rock in the stormy gales? It's, it's like not that. <laughs> I really struggled as a, a total new atheist type as I settled into atheism with nihilism. Nihilism is an extreme skepticism. The idea that nothing seems to hold value. It's an extreme rejection of meaning, inability to find meaning. Maybe you could think of it as the realization that life and the world are supremely meaningless. What's scarier than that? I, that's the abyss. Why does anything matter if everything is temporary and passing away? And if this is all just synapses in our brain firing, it's all subjective. Difficult questions. Why keep working? Why be faithful to your family? Why not just seek pleasure while you can? Pass along your genes. Live for pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. I personally cannot find that the universe has inherent or objective or eternal meaning. I think that what we mean by meaning is something personal, that it means something to us in our experience. Nothing can be more important to me than what it means to me. If it means something to a deity, well, good for him or for her. That's their purpose. Mine is what the universe means to me, what I experience, and what I choose to value, what brings me pleasure and gives meaning to my experience. One helpful solution to this issue is what I call optimistic nihilism. Okay, so the world is meaningless. What are you going to do, cry about it? If it's meaningless, maybe that sucks. It won't hurt to add some meaning. It's still better to make it better, to make the short trip fun instead of painful. It has meant so much to me to realize that there can only be meaning in the present moment. We literally don't know anything except that, except what's happening in the present moment. And all I can do is decide how to deal with this present moment. I don't know about, I can't control ultimate meaning. What happens in an eternal future? I'm only experiencing this moment, and I should savor it. Nothing else can be meant by meaning beyond that, as far as I can tell. So what gives the present moment its meaning? Well, that's up to you. Meaning is something that you ascribe. I find meaning in my family, in helping others. Why? Honestly, I don't know. Maybe I'm evolved to pass on my genes, to be socially cooperative. 
It releases endorphins to my brain as a reward for behavior that benefits my survival. I don't know why. It almost doesn't matter to me at that layer. Remember, nihilism means that I may not believe in anything at all. So I'm free to ascribe meaning to the moment. Hamlet says, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Well, then why not think that it's good then? Be thankful. Savor the moment. Accept the way things are. Don't worry about the future. Embrace the way things are and whatever you find meaningful and satisfying. And that is enough. That is literally the meaning of life. I don't think it's very helpful to look for more than that. Because then you end up looking past that. And that is the only thing we're really sure about. Nihilism is sort of the thing that you're afraid of when you're afraid of atheism. And I won't lie, it's a terrifying precipice to stand on the edge of and peer into. I'm trying to be straight with you. But it is okay to believe whatever is true. We deal with it how we can, and this is how I've made friends with it. The future is truly unknown. I know that all the moments up till here have been fine. And this moment is fine. The future has enough worries of its own. All right, speaking of the future, let's talk afterlife. If there is no heaven, what does an unbeliever think happens when we die? Well, you can think whatever you want. Remember that unbelief doesn't say anything about what you do believe. It describes what you don't believe. Got it. But you probably don't believe in an afterlife if you're an atheist. That's true. In my opinion, the null hypothesis, that is the thing you would go with in the absence of any other theories, is that the time after our life is just like the time before our lives. You just aren't there. It's annihilation. It's admittedly a huge step down from heaven. It can give you vertigo to imagine it sometimes. But sometimes, too, I'm thankful for annihilation, if that's the way things are. Because think about the alternative. Immortality might be even scarier. I heard a story once where Alexander the Great heard of this enlightened yogi in India. And he wanted to know the secret of evading death. So he sent for this yogi to see what he knew. But the yogi refused to leave his meditation and, and his cave and to come and see the emperor. Even under the threat of death, he refused to go with the soldiers who were sent to him. And Alexander was so impressed with the answers that were brought back and by this man's lack of fear of death that he was even more convinced that surely this yogi had the secret of eternal life. And when the soldiers returned, the yogi promised that if Alexander would come to him, he would indeed share the secret of eternal life with him. And Alexander, in his campaigns, came to the yogi. And when he did, he dismissed his attendants. He didn't want any other man to know the secret of eternal life. And as he promised, the yogi told the directions to a cave in which there was a spring. And if the emperor would drink from this spring, he would have eternal life. He would never die. So Alexander followed the sage's directions, and several miles away, he again dismissed his retinue so that no man but himself would know the secret of eternal life. He found the cave, just as described, and inside of it the spring, the spring of eternal life. Alexander 
kneeled down beside the spring and stared into it. Let's pause here. What would you do if you really, really had the prospect of gaining eternal life? You would never die. After everyone you love is gone, you would remain. After the human race is extinct, you would remain. When the universe has experienced heat death and there's nothing left, no stars, no creatures, no light even, you would only have begun your existence. All right, but that's not really the afterlife that most people believe in. What if, what if you were in a perfect paradise? What about eternity there? There's this really great show, if you haven't seen it, highly recommend. It's entertaining on every level. It's The Good Place with Kristen Bell. Uh, it's an NBC show. I think it streams on Peacock, and it's well worth seeing. It's a very funny sitcom in itself, but what, ha what the premise is is it's the afterlife. These people are dead, and the sitcom is happening in the afterlife, and so they explore the afterlife, and they tackle a lot of these big philosophical questions in really fun ways. You'll get a lot out of it. Well, minor spoiler alert. In the long arc of the story is that the humans eventually get control of the afterlife. They get to design their own afterlife. So they basically have omnipotent powers in a paradise for as long as they want. And they do everything they want to. They revisit places. They create places. They hang out with everybody. They just fulfill everything perfectly that they desire. And what they discover is that they all eventually get fulfilled. And they feel ready to move on. So there's this place in the afterlife uh, in the woods, and it's just a portal to the unknown. Nobody knows what's on the other side. It's kind of the only thing they don't know. It's not dissimilar to our concept of death. It may lead to a different place, a new beginning. It may be annihilation. They do not know. It's just there. And when they're done being immortal in heaven, they can choose to walk through it. And it's very meaningful and well done to watch each character eventually be done existing and, and struggle with whether or not to walk through the portal yet um, and why. Spend a little time thinking about it. Would you drink of the fountain of youth? Alexander did not. He thought about all these considerations and he decided not to. Life is beautiful. It's beautiful all by itself. It being longer doesn't necessarily make it more beautiful. In fact, now that I think of my existence as finite, I absolutely savor it more. I don't wish this was over so that I could move on to the next better thing. I truly feel the need to make the most of what's here, of my relationships, to be here now, to live while you're alive. I've relished my life so much more as a non-believer than I did as a believer. I'm not saying that believers don't or can't, just telling you my experience and saying that there is deep meaning and experiential beauty and unbelief too. But one of the hottest topics that believers and unbelievers sometimes differ on is that of evolution. And I'm not going to go into depth here. I just want to say a few words. First, if you don't know much about evolution or what you know is what you've heard from creation apologists, do yourself a favor and do a little more learning. It really is an interesting topic. Uh, you might be surprised. And if you don't know much about it, you'd be surprised how silly you can make yourself sound to people that do know a little bit about it. 
there are sometimes supposed knockout questions like, if humans evolved from monkeys, then why are there still monkeys? And those kind of questions betray that you really don't know the first thing about this topic. So learn enough at least to avoid that. And please don't learn about evolution from creation scientists only. They have a vested interest in misrepresenting ideas. They have biases. Learn about ideas in their best light from people that advocate for them. Give scientists a hearing. It can't hurt. It's okay to believe it if it's true. It's okay to jettison it if it's not. But what is clear is that the vast majority of people who spend their entire lives studying these issues, attempting to eliminate their biases using the scientific method, they review each other's work, it's their job to find fault in each other's work, these people find the theory of evolution to be one of the most sustainable ideas in all of science. There is so much evidence in every field of science for this. It's revolutionized our understanding of so much in ways that can't be overstated. It will not be difficult for you to find a popular accessible book or some resources online to start your understanding in this interesting concept. Again, I'm not going to go into it here. It's a huge topic. But approach this topic with a curious mind and see what you find. When you start doing some Googling about atheism and and interacting with it, you'll find pretty quickly that there is a definite subculture of atheism. I have immersed myself in it. I'm familiar with the characters pretty well, I think. And I'll give you the quick rundown. Atheists can be outspoken. You'll find that YouTube is rife with voices like Matt Dillahunty and other debaters who honestly can be jerks. They can be just as dogmatic as their believing opponents and their personalities for some reason, tend to be abrasive. They have powerful opinions, and that is kind of a drug. Personally, I find that a lot of them tend to look down on belief as childish and ignorant. They fail to give credit to the value of religion, but they're perfectly willing to explain why, and they deserve a hearing on that. They do relish spiking the football, and that makes for fun debates, but it isn't always endearing. Again, I strongly recommend that you hear them for yourselves. Let them make their best case before you write them off. And if you're going to argue with atheists, try to convert atheists, it's important that you argue against the best version of their cases. There are four prominent atheist personalities that are known as the Four Horsemen. And the brand of unbelief that the Four Horsemen teach is called the New Atheism sometimes. So if you hear that term, that's what it means. The four horsemen of new atheism are Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and Christopher Hitchens. Daniel Dennett, I honestly have never interacted with hardly at all, and I have consumed quite a bit of atheism. He's a philosopher and a cognitive scientist. I just can't say much about him. I've never seen him speak or read him. I don't know why he hasn't come across my path. Maybe he's less prolific than his counterparts. Richard Dawkins is a biologist. He's very intelligent. He's a good teacher. Of course, he has no love for religion, so if you're a believer, don't expect him to be extremely empathetic. He always strikes me as someone who was never a believer, and so he's like confused by people's faith. He's a great advocate for the theory of evolution, being a biologist, and his angle is mostly scientific. Dawkins has books about evolution, if you're interested in that. He also has books about morals and religion, things like The Selfish Gene, and his most popular book, The God Delusion. I read The God Delusion early on after leaving the church, and if you're willing to look skepticism right in the eyeball, then that is a powerful place to start. 
Christopher Hitchens is a real treat, one of my favorites. Uh, look up, especially when he and Stephen Fry debate two Catholics, it's a slaughter. Whether you side with uh, these guys or not, they are witty, they're articulate, they're funny, and they're just brutal. They call out the Catholic Church on its abuses, and it's a bloodbath. The internet made up the phrase, Hitch slapped, for when Christopher Hitchens destroys his opponents. He is a razor-sharp English wit. I promise that if nothing else, you'll be entertained by his singular mind. He died of cancer a few years back. Hitchens' magnum opus on unbelief is a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Generally, he's a masterful writer, and God's Not Great really changed the game for me. It's another one I read within a year of losing my religion, and I would recommend it to you as a good primer for atheism. Rounding out the four horsemen is Sam Harris, a neuroscientist and moral philosopher, and I interact with Sam a lot, not personally, of course, but I have his meditation app. The interesting thing about Sam that you may not know is that he's sort of spiritual. He's done a ton of work with meditation. He's spent significant time learning from and practicing with the greatest mystics of our generation. But Sam's approach is scientific and skeptical, but he's much more curious, I think, about his inner world than his fellow horsemen. He takes more time with questions of the nature of consciousness and the management of our mental well-being than the others do. He recognizes the value and the dangers of different traditions. Well, those are the big voices, but you'll find all kinds of resources these days, especially on YouTube, including many hours of footage of these guys debating, as well as many other channels from comedy stuff to serious philosophy. I enjoy watching debates because you get to see the ideas pitted against each other. You can watch these guys and others debate some of your favorite Christian apologists and see how the ideas hold up in the open marketplace of ideas. FYI, most of the debates are formatted. They do like speeches at the front, and then they have discussion time at the back where there's more back and forth. And don't hesitate to skip to the middle-ish where the juicy discussion begins if that's what you're into. You may find that more engaging than the monologues up front. But check them out for yourself. Uh, YouTube's your friend. It's free. And the books I've mentioned above, again, are all worth a read. Finally, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about the somewhere in between. Leaving a cult or deprogramming your Christianity doesn't mean that you have to be an atheist. My pendulum swung that way, but now it's settling down somewhere in between. I still don't believe in any divine personalities, but you don't have to be a total recreant if you don't want to be. Perhaps you've traveled abroad to a new culture for the first time and experienced culture shock. You never realize that there are ways to live and think that are so different from yours. Things that you take for granted as universal human experiences you might discover are just cultural constructs. And a foreign nation has a totally unique way of doing things and thinking of things, or of dressing, or of building their homes. This is almost always a constructive experience. You get a new view of your own culture, and you might even appreciate it more. Or you might learn to incorporate something cool and novel into your life. If you struggle to believe things in Christianity, or if you struggle with the Church of God's version of Christianity, you're free to explore much more than just unbelief. While the Greeks and the Hebrews were developing ideas that were trained in in the West, equally intelligent people were spending proportionate time in India, China, and elsewhere doing the same kind of thinking. 
but they've come up with wonderfully different ideas that can challenge and enhance our deeply held convictions if we let them. Materialism, scientific empiricism, atheism, these are not the only alternatives to Christianity. Dive into learning about different religions or even different denominations, and you may feel that feeling of culture shock. You'll be awed by the creativity of humanity expressed in other cultures. It rivals your own. And some of those things may fit your personality and your needs much better. In Hinduism, you may know that they have hundreds of gods. These are hundreds of expressions of deity. Not because they believe the heavens are crowded with characters, but because deity is so great, so all-encompassing, that they are comfortable not putting limits on it not casting it in the image of a bearded father. The father-god image may be very fitting for you at some times, and that may speak to you. But wouldn't an infinite God also include femininity? And what if we would like to experience and accentuate that aspect of deity in our lives? Would it be blasphemy to speak of God as a woman, or a warrior, or a lover, or as angry, or as patient? These expressions can be represented in symbolic ways. These are the gods. I'm always going to recommend that you read some alternative scriptures for yourself. In the case of Hinduism, a great scripture that's very accessible, uh, it's short, is the Bhagavad Gita. It was Mohandas Gandhi's favorite book. It has become one of mine. Pick up a copy. Be curious about it. In Christianity, the main problem to be solved is that we've offended a holy God and that we need to be made legally right so we can be admitted to eternal bliss. We have this idea so ingrained in us that when we learn about someone like the Buddha, we wonder what was his answer to this sin question. What's super interesting is you'll find that he never deals with it. His interest is in the suffering that we experience here on earth and he often refuses to even speak about metaphysics. He wants to help us accept our suffering and mitigate it. There's no deity in his religion, but rather a non-judgmental introspection. An easy scripture supposedly written by the Buddha is called the Dhammapada. It's a series of sayings. It's sort of like Proverbs, very readable. It won't offend your sensibilities at all, You'll find a lot of wisdom in there, and that's a neat way uh, to get a first taste of the Buddha. Last one I want to mention briefly, Taoism, uh, because the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu is such a wonderful book. Again, it's a short scripture in the Eastern tradition, and it is not dogmatic. It's it's not going to not mesh with anything that you currently believe. It's full of uh, wonderful wisdom and fun poems that you'll enjoy. And the Tao is kind of like the force in Star Wars. It moves through us, flows through us, uh, kind of uh, controls the world. And, and it's not something that you need necessarily to seriously believe in dogmatically. It's a symbol. It's a kind of language to explain something that's difficult to explain. In fact, the opening lines of the Tao say that the Tao that can be explained is not the true Tao. It's something that has to be felt and experienced. It's an ineffable kind of feeling. And uh, the Tao Te Ching tries to help you sort of identify this this curiously unidentifiable thing that flows through us all. Kind of like the Force. 
All this is to say nothing about the many legitimate expressions of Christianity, which you can settle into very contentedly. And I could go on and on. But be encouraged that if you're having doubts, atheism is not your only alternative, but it is a perfectly fine place to be. Different strokes for different folks. We are each unique, and the God that made us all so unique in so many ways, on purpose, didn't intend us all to wear the same suit, literally or figuratively. And he or she doesn't speak to us all in the same ways. And how we connect with that benevolent, eternal part of ourselves, how we label it, how we interact with it, that's all very personal. A drug that might be life-giving medicine to you could be poison to me. It's okay to believe whatever's true. Be curious. Explore religions if you're interested in religion. Explore philosophy if you're interested in philosophy. Just learn about it. Try to be open-minded. You may find that there are magical, life-giving things that you never imagined and will enrich your life. That can't be bad. As you can tell, I enjoy and I find value in all of these expressions, all without any literal belief in them. They do have things to teach us. They're like languages. And what matters isn't the grammar or the vocabulary the language uses, It's the content that it's trying to convey. I take these things as metaphors and symbols, and I try to look beyond the top layer, beyond the literal meaning, and down into the truths that they're conveying. I'm very opposed to dogma, but I'm not opposed to religion. In conclusion, I guess belief is like being splashed with lake water. When it hits you kind of in little spurts, it's uncomfortable. But if you jump into the lake, there is an initial shock, you become acclimated, and then all that splashing and stuff doesn't bother you a bit. And the lake's not so bad. It's actually pretty fun. That may be more of a description of how it went for me than advice for you, but it may comfort you. Ultimately, that's my take on unbelief, some of the good resources that I've learned from, philosophy, epistemology, religion to dig into. Venture into the unknown. Seek answers. Nobody ever has had access to as much information as you do. And I want to close with one last recommendation because it's my strongest recommendation. If you're into this kind of thing and you want many mind blows, then check out my man, Alan Watts. He's on all the platforms. You'll find him on YouTube and Spotify and everything. He's a religious philosopher. He was active in the 60s and 70s. He's passed now. And he does a lot of discussion of comparative religion. Um, You can even listen to him if you want on Spotify. Uh, You can listen to some of his speeches set to cool beats. You could look up the artist Akira the Dawn, and that may make the medicine go down for you. Don't be afraid to believe whatever is true. Don't be afraid to ask questions and go where the evidence goes. Don't let anyone take that ability from you. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Let the dross be burned off, even though it's scary. I know that it's scary. But ultimately, I have found great value in broadening my worldview and using the tools of skepticism to enhance it. I would love to hear your experiences in this regard, your wisdom. I would love to hear from you on our Facebook page. I would love to hear from you via email at churchofpodr at gmail.com. And in those places, we can continue this conversation. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.